grace to me is the the reconciliation i guess of the joy with the sorrow or the sorrow with the joy you know grace is what brings them together and to and says you know this this is the beauty of life this is the meaning of it that these two things coexist and you're part of it and what a blessing what a, you know what a blessing that is this week we're gleaning wisdom from generations that have come before us as i talk to lynn harrison After years of frustration with her music career, Lynn took a step back. She became a Unitarian Universalist minister at First Unitarian Toronto, figuring her music would fade into the background. But as she's learned throughout her life, it's in our moments of doubt that we learn we're on the right path. Lynn and I talk about the deep listening she's done to figure out her calling, She shares the importance of reveling in life's ups and downs, and that being present to it all is where we find growth. And she reminds us that spirituality is personal and a reflection of where you are at this moment in life. Because how do you take a step forward when you're unsure what comes next? You find a little faith. I'm Maren Smith, and this is Keeping Faith. Keeping Faith is located on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek people in Hamilton, Ontario. And Lynn Harrison lives on Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Ojibwe Chippewa, and Wendat territory in Toronto, Ontario. So what is giving you hope right now? And is there a story from your life recently that has connected you with your sense of faith or hope? I think what's giving me hope right now is that even in a time of uh, significant insecurity and, um, you know, concern for the world, concern for our own personal health and uh, for the future, that people have responded um, really so, so strongly with with a sense of gratitude and uh, connecting with each other. And, and I think connecting to life in a broader sense. I, you know, at a time when most people are under significant stress, um, simply dealing with, with this unexpected crisis of the pandemic, to, to have so much positive spirit emerge from it in such a natural way gives me a great deal of hope in human resilience uh, and our ability to, to, to deal with difficult uh, situations and get through that. Yeah, I think that that has been a blessing that I feel like a lot of people have felt from this situation is that there has been this like bubbling up of love, of connection, of desire to improve life situation for many people. 
um, which has been really special. Do you have a specific example that you can think of? <laughs> you know, there's so many, it's hard to, it's hard to actually pinpoint, you know, so not one specifically, the, the thing that comes to mind for me, and in fact, it, it came up before this experience, it came up when there was a, the, the shooting on the Danforth last summer, there was a, uh, you know, an active shooter who unfortunately killed a number of people. And um, the, the spontaneous um, chalk art on sidewalks from mm-hmm. children and adults, um, inspirational messages that are expressed in chalk. And I, I, so that's come back again on our street, for example, the, there's, there's chalk art out on the street all the time. And I think what I love about that form of art First of all, that it springs up so spontaneously in a time of difficulty, but also that it washes away. Mm. So there is inherently that sense that this is not permanent. You cannot fix hope and a feeling of joy, but you can express it when it comes. You can also know that it's going to be washed away and then you can you can put it back again. Um, so I think that's that's what comes to mind for me right now. Yeah, that's I think um in my own personal practice in being a yoga teacher and exploring the teachings of yoga, um, one of the teachings that comes from the yoga sutras is this idea that we cannot cling to emotions and that there's actually a danger in clinging to both pleasure and pain. And I think that that's a really interesting thing you say is that you're offering the not clinging to the the hope even, because that can be a natural reaction in like these kinds mm-hmm. of times. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's true. I think that, you know, we we tend to look for hope as a fixed entity, something to hang on to, to say, for sure, this is going to get better, and it's going to get better by such and such a date, and I'm going to have such and such a success or this or that thing. Um, and, you know, of course, if you've lived any length of time, you, you discover pretty quickly that that isn't the case. Things, you know, good fortune does come and go, and even misfortune can turn into good fortune. Um, often we don't know the positive implications that are going to come from, from a difficulty that we may have. So I think trusting the process, uh, even though it's difficult to do, because of course it's extremely uncomfortable and people don't want to go through those difficult, those difficult times, those difficult emotions. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious about where this perspective or how it's evolved in your life. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, how you grew up and what you were taught about the world and uh, what did you learn about faith and hope as you were growing up? Well, probably like most people, I don't, I don't think that my parents kind of ever sat us down and delivered a lecture on such things. (laughs) uh, At least I don't remember that if they, if they did. I, I grew up in a home that had a traditionally Christian um, outlook, uh, liberal Christian, so progressive, a progressive outlook. Um, but I think that was um, an underpinning of my parents' lives and then my own. So that was certainly there in the background. Um, also, both of my parents um, were, and my mother still is, uh, a creative people. So, so mm-hmm. the idea that you could work with your life uh, through through writing, whether it be poetry or short stories or painting. Um, in my case, it turned out to be songwriting. So this this idea that you could kind of make something good out of out of whatever materials life gives you. I think that because we were encouraged to be creative in so many ways, I think that just became a foundational understanding in my life. 
So that you could use creativity as a tool to kind of process your experiences? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think it has a transformative quality to it. Um, there's actually a, a, I believe it's a Sufi saying that, you know, our, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're share, you're called to share in the pain of the world. Um, but your task is to, to take it into your heart to turn suffering into joy. Uh, you know, I think that's there again, there is this sort of alchemy that takes place when, when you're given the stuff of life, which, which includes sorrow as well as joy. And you make meaning of it through whatever creative process you, you like to use. And it doesn't have to be a, an artistic process. It can be uh, simply working in community or being in relationship. Those things count just as much. But there's that sense that, uh, again, nothing is, is fixed. You know, nothing is kind of um, fixed and unmoving. It's constantly in a state of change and that we're part of that change. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the context in which you grew up? Because, you know, you are of a different generation than I am and um, most of the people I've talked to on this show. So can you talk a little bit about where you were and the times you were in and how that kind of influenced your understanding of the world and of yourself and of this process? Well, I think I was really fortunate to to be growing up in a time where there was less existential uh, concern. I mean, it, it was there. It just wasn't front and center in a way that it is for younger people now. I don't, I don't believe that people sort of generationally are fundamentally different as human beings. I think, I think it's more a question of, you know, what are, what's going on in the world at the point that you're reaching a certain life stage. So, you know, at, at a particular point when you might be wanting to have children, for example, um, given the climate crisis, that puts a completely different outlook on that choice. I, as I've spoken to many uh, younger people, and I'm sure I would have been in the same situation. Mm-hmm. So, so things like that, um, I, I really feel fortunate to have not had that at those life stages. You know, I think too about people who may have grown up during the Great Depression uh, or during during a world war. Um, those events shaped people's life experience. They, they happened to be where they were at a particular time in history. Uh, and so, yeah, so when I was beginning my work life, it was, you know, the mid 80s. And you know, even though there was some economic downturn at the time, there was also a sense that there was some sense of assurance that I could make a living for myself and, you know, make a home and raise a family. And there weren't that, I, I, I don't remember. And again, it's, it's possible that I was simply kind of oblivious. I mean, I was, I was involved in, uh, in the peace movement at the time and, you know, doing, doing volunteer work in that area, even at that time. And yet I don't believe, or I don't remember there being such a, a cloud of concern over my life at that time. And again, it may have simply been that I was less in tune with it at that time than I am now. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, you had talked a little bit about, like, where we talked a little bit about using creativity as a way to kind of connect with yourself, connect with the world, connect with that spiritual sense. Do you have a, a memory or an instance from your younger life or, or, or a time in your life where that became really important for you or was an important tool? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, when I was a teenager, a young teenager, well, throughout my teen years, actually, my family was going through quite a difficult time. Uh, my parents were going through an extremely difficult time. And um, having having an outlet for my own expression um, was extremely important to me at that time. It also took my mind off of the troubles. <laughs> you know, there was yeah. that as well. You know, it's on the one hand, it's a distraction and, it, and an escape in some ways, but it's it's a healthy dist- distraction that that again, helps come to terms with life as it is. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, uh, again, it was kind of a natural thing to turn to to songwriting at the time, um, to to get to know myself better and to en- enjoy life despite what was going on. Um, so I think that was pretty important for me. Yeah, for sure. I think that it, I find that a, a lot of people in those teen years find th- that kind of outlet. Um, I remember just how important I've talked to so many people about how music is so important as a teenager, because you can't, you're just learning what emotions feel like at any sort of depth. And you're learning how to process that. And sometimes you don't even have the words to articulate it. And so music, I think really helps you find a way to say or, or to express those things, even if it's not directly related to the situation you're experiencing. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I think it's usually not. Um, well, sometimes it is, you know, directly related, but often it isn't. And that's become, that's been true for me throughout my creative life that, you know, the song I write in the middle of whatever crisis probably doesn't have to do with that crisis specifically. Um, (laughs) It comes at it in another way or comes out of something else that's going on. And I guess that's the other piece, you know, that we, we're not just our conscious minds. We're not just our egos and, you know, that sort of top level of awareness, you know, our, uh, our self with a capital S in the, in the Jungian terms, you know, our, our unconscious, you know, that is, um, as much part of our living experience uh, as our as our conscious mind and you know controlling ego is so so I find creative work um, you know when you sort of allow yourself to get into that sense that state of flow and inviting in of the influences beyond your kind of conscious mind that that just I find it's just a way to tap into life at a deeper level and mm-hmm. um or tap into self the with the capital S which is what I would say connected to the divine in all things um so it's there's a deep reassurance there you know in addition to the sort of conscious figuring out or processing of what's going on here what what's the situation uh what does it mean for me I think there's this sense of connection with something deeper and broader and embracing, which is so reassuring that, you know, we're going mm-hmm. to be okay because we're connected to this deeper creative process, which is part of us and which is also holding us at the same time. Um, so, so I think that's part of why people, people, you know, again, turn to those, to the creative arts in, especially in times of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So this, uh, became a career path for you as well. Um, Music became something that you decided to do professionally. What was that process like of coming to that or or that transition like for you? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, great question. Um, For me, so I started writing songs when I was uh, 12. And 
for quite a while, didn't really think that that would become a viable career path. And I think that's, you know, we, we could debate what that means, you know, in terms of artistic life, what a viable career path means, because yes, yes. the vast majority of artists, myself included, cannot make a living, you know, a kind of steady salary with their, with whatever art they do. Um, but, um, and that's, and that's, you know, that's not necessarily, well, again, it's a different, it's a different subject, but it's a fact and it's worth, worth saying. Um, for me though, so I went down a different career path initially, um, thinking that I would go into broadcasting, um, as my professional career and did that for several years before my children came along. Mm. And really it was when my first child was very small, uh, and I realized that I had not been bringing my music out into the world in a way that I really needed to. And the clarity came for me when I realized that I would want my son uh, at the time. I have a daughter as well now. Um, I would want him to do the thing that he was called to do, mm. uh, that I, w- I, I would not want him to hold that back, um, even if it was a difficult career path, even if it didn't appear to be, quote unquote, practical or make a lot of money, I would want him to follow his calling. Mm. And so when I realized that I was not doing that at the time, uh, that meant that I that allowed me to let go of the other career path that I had been on. And I very clearly and definitely at that point stopped doing that work. Um, looking after children at the time too allowed for a natural break. And it was also, again, a very uh, healthy life choice for me to do at the same time. Mm. Um, but I f- started to focus on my music exclusively at that time with, you know, with freelance work to support me as well. Um, but that that was it, realizing uh, when you have a calling, you know, when you, there's that sense of you have a vocation, you have a calling, there is a there is work that you are supposed to do, and only you are supposed to do. I think people when they have that strong feeling, um, the, you know, it's, it, it's not something it's something that you can't not do. <laughs> However, in the course of a life, it's going to create all kinds of challenges. But um, I'm grateful that I did decide to do that and that I'm still doing it now. So I know there's there's no formula for this. And I know the experience is different for many people. But I do think that a lot of young people struggle with, how do I know what I'm called to do? What does that feel like? How am I supposed to discern what that is for me? Can you articulate at all what that process was like for you or what, how you knew you were being called to something? What did it feel like for you? Yeah, you know, um, I think that that's such a personal, it's, it's a personal journey for each, for everyone. Uh, and for some people, there, I think there is that sense of clarity. And I want to, I want to say almost obsession or compulsion. Like there's, again, the thing that you cannot, that you cannot not do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the clarity is helpful, you know, when it's there. I think when the clarity isn't there, and that doesn't mean that it's, that, you know, you're not on the right path or that you're not doing valuable work or that there's something wrong. Um, I mean, well, here's another, here's another thought. Um, in my own case, part of the clarity came from obstacles. You know, part Mm -hmm. of the clarity came from knowing that there were a number of very significant practical obstacles in my way, uh, from, from continuing to pursue my music and being very, um, very confident in that. And I think the obstacles actually created a clarity in myself, 
um, that I needed to persist, that I needed to continue. Um, and so I think that's part of it, maybe to see, to see the obstacles in front of you. What are the things that you're ch- sort of chafing against? You know, what are the yeah. things that really are, you're thinking, if only I could break through here. Well, that might be a clue to where you need to go. Uh, they, they might, they might be showing you something. Um, there's a wonderful book actually called Callings by Greg Levoy, which I, it's not new anymore. It's probably about 20 years old, but it's, in my opinion, the best book ever written on callings and, and vocation. It's great. I really highly recommend it. And it's, and it's, you know, also points out where you can receive, um, nudges, you know, nudges from the universe. You know, I think, I think to be awake to those things, you know, whether it appears, whether it appears in a dream um, or a synchronicity, something that just shows you, you know, this is actually where the universe wants you to be. Um, I, I, looking back on my life, there's there's so many of those moments that I can connect it to my songwriting life. Weird coincidences that happened, things that shouldn't have happened by rights, but they did. And you know, to notice them and. Uh, you know, at a very at a very formative point, I did have a very vivid dream, which I still remember, which was really saying, I won't go into the content of it, but it very clearly symbolically said, come over here. This is where you need to be. And so, I, again, in retrospect, I can say, well, thank goodness I did pay attention to that. At the time, you know, you think, well, this is crazy. You know, this is, why would I do that? That doesn't seem to make sense in the, mm-hmm. again, practical terms or financial terms. Um but uh, yeah, sometimes you have to do it anyway. Yeah, it's. I think it's a process of learning to trust those moments or those nudges. Or I think um, Elizabeth Gilbert, the writer, talks about them as like quarter inch head turns. You know, it's not always like one a one eighty turn of your head to notice something. It's just like that that quarter inch turn to something new. It strikes me that that involves learning to trust those things that are coming to you, those messages or, or those, um, those nudges, what has that been like for you learning to trust where that has come from? Or is it a process of experience something and not doing it? And then, (laughs) you know, reflecting? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we often think that there's going to be this kind of Damascus moment, you know, a blinding flash of light and we will know exactly where we should go and what we should do. And (laughs) we're kind of disappointed if that's not happening. Um, and uh, we think we're on the wrong path, but, but yes, I think, um, the, the, the nudges and the small turns that change the course of your life, um, that's probably more realistic. And I, I think the other piece is, is the turning away. Like we, we don't all, we don't point in one direction and, and move steadily there without changing our mind a, a gazillion times. You know, we, we will turn away as many times as we turn toward. Uh, they talk about, you know, with, um, you know, airline pilots that it's the course corrections are constant. You know, you're not just constantly flying the plane mm-hmm. without any course correction. It's always going on. The course correction is always taking place. So I, I think just trusting that and recognizing, uh, life is not, um, uh, you know, life is kind of messy. Well, it is. Life is very messy. And I think the other thing that I've learned that's becoming more clear to me as I get older is that, this idea that I can control everything and that I could just make the, that I could just 
again, decide what's right for me and go in that direction and that, that I should be able to do that. Mm. I think actually that can be a little harmful too, because that, that prevents life or that kind of blocks the creativity that life will bring to you. Uh, life will bring to you many uh, materials that you don't expect and that you couldn't prevent. And so if you're, I think if, if we are agile enough and receptive enough to take those, to take those um, materials too, when they come along, it means that the calling may change a little bit in terms of the, the way it looks. You know, it, it might not, it might not end up exactly the way you pictured it initially. But if you look at it in the in the context of your life with all of what life brought you, it, it can be absolutely appropriate um, and shaped exactly perfectly for, for who you are. Um, there's a song I haven't finished yet, but um, it may not get past the title, but um, the title or the lyric is um, Every Road Not Taken Still Leads Home. And, you know, this is the thing, like, you may not take every road, you may, not, you may, there may be many roads not taken. But that doesn't mean that you don't wind up as you, and who you are, and who you were meant to be. So this, I, I think we have to guard against a certain perfectionism and mm, sort of ego driven desire to have things fall into a particular shape that looks a particular way. I think that might block a whole lot of, of possibility that's still waiting for us. Yeah. And I think that that is so true of these times in particular as well. I, I, I sometimes feel like we are going through a global practice of letting go yes. <laughs> of mm -hmm. all the expectations we've had about how life should look like and, and what we're supposed to do day to day. It's all being changed right now. Right. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. They'll tell you life's a river. They'll say that it's a road, maybe life is a learning curve. It's banking up too sharply, sliding up real slow. I know life is a learning curve. Taking time to learn to drive, get somewhere and stay alive. Easily an accident occurs when life is a learning about you talked about your career path towards becoming a musician you're also a minister and i know that was a career path that came a bit later mm -hmm. um so i guess two questions there one you talked about having a traditional christian upbringing and then you're now a unitarian universalist minister mm -hmm. so what was sort of your transition from from your traditional christian upbringing to unitarianism and then why why ministry what called you in that direction yeah so i i i know that i wouldn't have been called to a traditional christian ministry um i stayed within the united church uh, into my young adult years uh, around the time to actually until my children were born um but then I found as I got a little older, my spiritual influences broadened, were, were broadening uh, beyond that context. And I just found I, I just, it just didn't feel like a fit anymore for me to continue uh, in that framework. So I stepped away from the United, the United Church at that time and was really without a kind of um, clear spiritual path for, for quite some years. And again, I don't think that was necessarily bad or wrong. Uh, it just, it just was what it was. 
Um, but then at a particular juncture in our family and my marriage, we, I wanted a, a religious community again. I felt that I'd benefit from the support of a spiritual community. And I happened upon a Unitarian Universalist congregation here in Toronto, a neighborhood, um, neighborhood congregation, which is smaller than First Unitarian. And I found it, I found it very, very comfortable in that it, um, it, it invited many, um, sources of wisdom, many of which I was already, um, tapping into in my life. And I appreciated the openness of the framework and loved, loved the feeling of being in religious community again, um, but in that new way. Uh, so that was really wonderful. And that's, um, so my family liked it too. Uh, the kids enjoyed it and Dave loved it as well. So, so it felt like a natural fit. And then, um, one of the things I started to do right away was sing there. Uh, and in fact, write songs that were, um, for services. You know, there was, a situation where there was a there was a theme of wind that was uh, going to be the service that particular Sunday, and someone said, "Do you have a song about wind?" And I said, "Well, no, but I'll I'll write something." And I did, and so using my music in that way and finding it to be spiritually useful to people was extremely affirming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, started to do work in spiritual direction, working with other people, getting some training from the minister there. And it was a time in my life when I was looking for something new. And um, I think I can be quite honest. I was at that point fairly disenchanted, disillusioned, or discouraged. But that maybe discouraged is the best word. I was really discouraged about my music career. Let's just be really blunt about it. Um, I really felt that I'd given it a good shot. I released mm, probably three four records at that point and really hadn't received the attention that I thought it they I would have would have liked I guess and found that I also had young children I wasn't inclined to want to orient my my world toward constant touring and travel which is what uh, musicians really do need to do in order to make uh, any kind of living and the living that they make is quite modest so in terms of lifestyle, I wasn't prepared to do that. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I still question that choice. I, I think I can be honest about that. Uh, but at the same time, the fact that I could use my gifts in ministry, that was identified by the minister, Wayne Walter, who encouraged me to go into ministry. And it, you know, it's again, these, these little, little turns that take place, um, that particular moment of, oh, you could go to seminary. You know, was was really quite quite uh, quite a revelation. There's a religious word too. It was wonderful and um, really the right change for me at the right time. I expected that my music would recede into the background. It did just the opposite. Um, as I continued in seminary and ultimately became an ordained minister, in fact, my music, my musical life, became even more important to me and, in fact, to other people. And so, mm-hmm. so, you know, again, the life, life throws stuff at you, which is really quite interesting. And, um, I can't give you a definitive answer about how it all turned out. Like right now, I feel that I have a really rewarding hybrid career. Anyway, so yeah, it's been a really interesting journey. And I'm extremely grateful, actually, that the two callings do dovetail reasonably well. Mm-hmm. You know, that my the congregation First Unitarian appreciates and loves my music. I, I have the opportunity to sing in, in services and bring the music there. 
Um, and again, the, the ministry work has not prevented more songs from being written and has not gotten in the way too much of other performance as well. So, so I'm very fortunate that the two seem to fit fairly well together. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about the idea of doubt because you've talked a little bit about artistic careers being very uncertain. (laughs) Career changes are very uncertain. I think a lot of people in my generation feel a lot of doubt when it comes to career, for sure, and not having the same structure and um, expectations of maybe their parents' generation. I also think, you know, you've you've brought up climate change and, and how that's affecting the idea of our future as well. So I'm curious about how you have sort of walked through doubt in your own life and maybe how you reflect on the doubts that that you see millennials have either other musicians coming up in your life or or you know folks in your congregations as well yeah um well i mean no no question uh doubt has been uh a big part of my life and career path at various points you know um many times you know questioning is this the right path? Will I ever get on to the path that I need to be on? Uh, is there something I could be doing that could be, that would be more effective or would lead to more stability or success? You know, all of those questions have been really a part of my life. And, you know, I actually, again, if I can see it as a blessing, um, coming back to that idea of obstacles, mm. you know, d- doubt has been part of my music career from absolutely day one, you know, I, the sense of, well, I doubt this will work. You know, I doubt that I can do this. I remember, I remember, uh, working through the artist's way, uh, the Julia Cameron classic book, mm-hmm. you know, and, and thinking, and there's one point, you know, where she asks to put a dream of yours into, you know, actually write down a dream. And the dream was, um, the dream I wrote down was, well, some, someday I would like to have a CD of my songs, mm-hmm. you know, well, you know, I, I have six now, you know, yeah. and so the, the idea that, well, it started from doubt, there was doubt all the way through. It never has. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. It has never been successful in the ways that people would expect. And but that doesn't prevent me from doing it. And it doesn't prevent me from being myself. So. So I think the sort of living with doubt, you know, just sort of having it be part of the landscape, understanding that, you know, the there may be there may be disappointments and compromises, there may need to be um, combinations of activities. I mean, and this is not new. I mean, throughout history, you know, people in artistic careers, they've done other things, yeah. you know. So that is just part of it, and it and that connects us to life in a way that is um, healthy and brings much more insight and wisdom to us too. I don't know, you know, I, I think it's almost as if you have to do what you need to do without expectation of success. You know, you just do have to do it. And I think this is very true about activism as well, um, that you have to do what is right, not not connected to outcome, like not not you're not doing it because you know it's going to work you know you do it because you know it's the right thing to do or it's the ethical stand to take um and we certainly hope that it will turn out in the right way i mean that's that's what we always hold um however there's no guarantee of that 
but to not but to give up before even doing it or to give up because the outcome is uncertain well that would mean you weren't living into your destiny if i can use that mm-hmm. word into your fullness as a human being and i think that that is what we're all called to do is to live into the fullness of who we are and what we can contribute uh without knowing what the big picture is going to be not, not knowing what how that contribution is going to fit into the larger the larger picture yeah yeah that's so true and i think so the flip side of of doubt i think is persistence or <laughs> or yeah. resiliency even in the face of it um and i think resiliency is a very buzzy word people kind of talk about you know growing resilience or like becoming a more resilient society so i'm curious as to what resilience means to you and how you've seen that play out in your life and again sort of how you see it in the context of the world we live in now well for me a big piece of resilience is first of all accepting that that fear and grief and uh, you know, anxiety or even despair are going to be part of the landscape we're working with. Mm-hmm. You know that that th- this is life. You know, there, there's, there. This is just part of being a human being. Um, and so, I think that's the first piece to recognize that it's not a matter of eliminating those things. It is a matter of experiencing them, accepting that they're part of life, and opening ourselves up to provide enough space to hold those things while also continuing to move forward and and seek joy and offer love and, you know, um, you know, uh, live with compassion, that all of those things can coexist. Um, I think that's a huge piece. Mm. And I, I just, you know, it's been interesting watching the way people have responded And the way I've responded, you know, in this pandemic so far, you know, just, I guess, five weeks or so that we've been in it, you know, really being able to see very clearly moving through a time of real fear, fear and anxiety and depression and grief, you know, and that lasted for several weeks. And then more and more this little sense that, oh, you know what, there's a little bit more ease, there's a little bit, and it may not be true for all people, but for many people now, I think I'm noticing myself and I'm hearing from others, noticing a little bit more ease now, like a little bit more relaxation, a little bit more feeling at home in the situation. The anxiety and the fear is not gone, but there is more of a sense of of hopefulness, of, of ah, you know what, I can move with this. I can adapt to this situation. Um, so, so again, it's not eliminating all the dark stuff. It's in fact making it's it's acknowledging it and making enough space for it, which also makes space for the for the more positive emotions, if I could call them that. Yeah, it it actually goes back to kind of what we were talking about a lot at the beginning of not not clinging to the joy, not clinging to the doubt, but embracing the the gray area in between, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that there's yeah. there's a fullness there, right? And I, you know, I do I do think that here in North America, you know, in the first world countries with a lot of comfort, I mean, again, there is that illusion sometimes that we should be happy, you know, we should be right. happy all the time, you know, we should feel good all the time, and that's really not what life is about. <laughs> it's <laughs> that's that's wishful thinking, and and then if we don't feel that all the time, then there's also that sense of 
you know, uh, blaming ourselves. You know, maybe I'm doing something wrong. What if I had, if I had only made this other choice, things would have been different. Rather than working with a an acceptance of of what is, and then choice making of what we can do to make a contribution, what we can do to change what we can. Yeah, totally. Um, so I have two questions for you before I get to kind of the, the final ones that I had that have just sort of come up as we've been talking. Um, the first one is I have noticed a lot in your songwriting um, and in some of your preaching as well, you talk about the concept of grace or you use the word grace a lot. And I'm curious as to what that means to you and what that, why that is an important concept for you. Yeah. Um, well, thank, thank you for noticing that. Um, I'm not sure I've noticed it myself exactly, really, but now that you mention it, sure. Um, I think, I think it comes down for me to that, to that which we do not control, um, that which comes to us, uh, outside our own choice making and volition, but that is for our good. Um, and these moments of blessing, I guess, would be another way of seeing it. And often blessing in the midst of challenge, you know, that sense of, you know, in the midst of the storm, there also was this moment when I saw the beauty of the rain uh, on the sidewalk, you know, uh, washing away the chalk, <laughs> you know, it, it, grace to me is the, hmm, the reconciliation, I guess, of the joy with the sorrow or the sorrow with the joy, you know, grace mm-hmm. is what brings them together and to, and says, you know, this, this is the beauty of life. This is the meaning of it, that these two things coexist and you're a part of it. And what a blessing, what, a, you know, what a blessing that is. So, um, and I think, if, you know, the idea too, thinking more about that word, you know, we talk about wanting to be gracious. We want to be right. graceful, right? We want to move with grace. Uh, when we do that, I think, um, and I think it's also closely connected to the idea of dignity too, you know, mm-hmm. that we, we move with um, being, being grounded in life as it is, standing with balance and, um, and acceptance of, of what, and, and you know, ex- accepting the invitation that life gives us, you know, to move into that as ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. So my other question for you is, I think when I reflect a lot of, or a lot on my own generation, when I reflect on some of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast, um, I think there's a lot of people in my generation as millennials who are deeply desire a spiritual connection somewhere in their life, but maybe have um, been hurt by the tradition they came from, or maybe have never had a tradition and don't know how to approach one. Do you have any advice on how to explore what might be a good option for you, or if you're curious about, you know, stepping through the doors of a congregation, how to, how to get there and how to do that for yourself? Yeah, no, great question. Um, 
I would recommend giving yourself permission to try, you know, to, to experiment, to recognize that there's no right way or wrong way to be a spiritual person. We are spiritual beings. You don't have to do anything special. You're already a spiritual being. And to simply notice the times when you feel connected to something larger than yourself. That's all it really, that's all it really is requiring. So a starting point would be, you know, just noticing those moments when you're feeling relaxed, when you have a certain sense of enjoyment in life, maybe you're walking down the street or maybe you're sitting quietly and just turn your attention to, to the larger, the, the larger whole, you know, and, and sort of open yourself up to the awareness that you're part of that. Uh, if, if words are useful to you, the words like the universe, um, or the, the source, the creative source, or God. You know, again, there's nothing wrong with any of those words, and you can experiment with them and try them, and you don't have to land on one forever either. You know, I use all of them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> interchangeably, and I, and I really revel in that. I really revel in that. Um, now, there is, there is benefit, too, to regular spiritual practice, the discipline of a spiritual practice, for example, uh, meditation practice for a certain amount of time each day, often at the same time each day, that can be extremely beneficial. It has, it's been um, shown to have measurable positive effects on our brain, um, on our neurology. So hugely important there. Um, and at the same time, I think simply being able to pay attention to life and open ourselves up to the sense that we are part of something more that's what it's about you know so whatever language you want to use going into any form of spiritual um community or uh you know walking into a church it can be quite wonderful actually you know just in terms of placing ourselves in the environment that will uh positively trigger you know those senses of of openness to something larger you know that's what it's about, really. It's it's not about something magical. It's really about what works for us as humans to help us feel connected in a larger way. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is intertwined. Everything that's yours and mine. How completely we're combined. Everything is intertwined. Everything is interlaced Every line upon your face Tied to every time and place Everything is interlaced Everything is intertwined And you're always on my mind Always in my heart and mind Everything is intertwined. So I want to put to you a question that I put to everyone I've spoken with on the podcast, and it's about the definition of faith. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith in three ways. One, as an allegiance or duty to something. Two, as a belief or trust in something greater than yourself. And three is something that you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so I want to put each part of that definition to you as a question. So 
for you, what do you feel that you have a duty or allegiance to? I think I've always felt um, a duty to try to be of service. Um, I think that has that is something that I didn't mention earlier in terms of what I was brought up with. I think that there was that that understanding that we are here not simply for ourselves but for others, and so so to be of service, to be of use, um, I think has been very important to me. And that sense of that has been a sense of duty or allegiance. Yeah. 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 And what do you trust or put your faith in that is greater than yourself? Well, I, I think I really do trust that there's so much more, uh, going on, then we could possibly understand that the life is so marvelously complex and awe-inspiring, and that I am part of that, and that that you know I can be of service. I can be of service to that. I can give back to that. There's also an element of um, of gratitude in that. You know that I am so grateful and so kind of bowled over by the beauty of life that I want to give some of it back. Um, so I think that's, I, I have absolutely unshakable faith that I'm part of something truly miraculous and amazing, uh, which will, con- which will continue, you know, whether or not human beings continue or not. You know, I just think that li- life itself with capital letters is, is, uh, something that's an, it's an extraordinary gift and privilege to participate in. Yeah. And so what do you believe or no beyond a shadow of a doubt? And I know that this question can sometimes initially <laughs> uh, result in resistance from people to the idea of beyond a shadow of a doubt. But what I'm trying to get at with it is like, I think there are core things that we feel are truths within us. And so I'm curious to, to hear you speak to any of that. Well, I think, um, also, allegiance to the present moment is worth saying. Um, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know that we're here. I know that I am here now. You know, this is this is this is what is happening right now in this moment, and that when I am present in this moment um, and fully attentive to it and accepting of it, then I am able to be the person I'm needed to be, uh, and I'm able to contribute. Um, I think that's. It's a very small answer in a way, you know, to say the present moment as it is, life as it is, you know, is, is what, mm. is what I, uh, what I know. Yeah. There, you say it's small. It's also a very difficult concept for, a, a, I think, a lot of folks because <laughs> we are so programmed to be thinking about our past and planning our future that that present moment, I think, can be difficult to attend to. Well, and and there's there's the gift of spiritual practice. You know, I think that's. I'm glad. I'm glad that this came up. I, I mean, I think that is the gift of spiritual practice, and the point of spiritual practice is to help us uh, let go of the past and the future and stay in this moment, and really know that that is what that is who we are, and that is what we need. Um, and that the more we're simply able to be present 
it doesn't mean that we won't plan for things and it doesn't mean that we might have, you know, opinions, regrets, um, happy memories, you know, again, hopes for the future. But to, to simply, to simply be, you know, I think that's the other thing we hear about, you know, being as opposed to doing, to learn how to simply be as with life, to be with life as it is. That's what spiritual practice is about. And it, when we're in, um, when we're engaged in spiritual practice, whatever form it is, one will often notice that our own kind of ego awareness or my sense of Lynn Harrison as Lynn Harrison kind of falls away. You know, it's not really about me anymore or the little, um, the ambitions that I have or the sense of myself in terms of a list of accomplishments. It's more that I, I am deeper than that and bigger than that. My little me persona is, it's part of me. It's a very important part of me, but it's not the whole of me. The whole of me is what's connected to the divine whole, however you call that, whether you call it God or you call it life or the universe or however you define that. Um, but the I, that the self that is the bigger self uh, transcends um, all of that sense of uh, grasping and clinging, the clinging that you were talking to earlier. So I think that's kind of what we're aiming for, you know, when we're hoping to do, to develop any spiritual practice. And it just, it allows us to move through the world with more equilibrium. And I think being a bit more awake to what we can offer without kind of being all hung up, you know, on all those uh, ego stuff that, that trips us up, you know, if, we, if we're honest, it does trip us up a lot. And it prevents us, I think, from being truly responsive in a creative way. Yeah. So I think that that kind of dovetails nicely into your spiritual practice. So... Do you have a spiritual practice that you do on a regular basis? It could be, you know, weekly, daily, monthly, yearly, that helps you stay connected to your sense of faith or hope. Sure. Uh, there are many. Um, and so I th I'll just sort of recognize many of them. So, so I do try to approach um, my musical life as a spiritual practice. I do try to open up to the larger creativity. Uh, I, I invoke the spirits of people who have gone. I call upon um, the angels who can assist me. Um, I invite God to be in the song, uh, to, to write the song. Um, so that's, that's one uh, spiritual practice. And I would also say that that is not a guarantee that the songwriting will go smoothly or that the song will turn out well, you know, in kind of evaluating that the way we, we tend to do. It's more of a posture, if I can use that word, a stance of um, receptivity as opposed to control. Uh, it's not so much me deciding I'm going to write a song about X, Y, Z. It's more that I would like to be in a posture of, of, of receiving uh, and being able to work with what comes my way. So that's one. Um, I do a lot of dream work. I've, uh, I do, I'm very interested in uh, Jungian psychology and I've done quite a bit of dream work with um, a senior teacher for quite a long time. Uh, that's another spiritual practice. I, I find uh, looking at what's coming to me from my dream life, you know, which can often be very puzzling and, and, weird and baffling and interesting 
it can be it can tell me things that my ego mind is not wanting to see or can't see quite yet it can open me up to new paths uh, and on a very simple level, here's a third one. I do try to sit in mindfulness meditation for at least 20 minutes a day, um, usually first thing in the morning. Um, sometimes it's longer, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Um, but I find at least 20 is a good amount of time to do that. And that just helps me. Um, it, it keeps me in practice of just noticing my thoughts uh, as a thought comes along to label it a thought and just simply let it go and just sit in the simple being and awareness um, and also just recognize how many times uh, a storyline comes up, how many times I get caught by my own story. Um, mm -hmm. And just, again, it's a story. It's a, it's a thought, let it go. And that helps me, I think, again, in the course of regular life, just maintain a certain amount of openness and uh, receptivity to things that come along. That's what I'm always trying to do. And of course, like anyone else, of course, I get triggered. And of course, I get uh, caught up in plans and hopes and fears and all of that. But we all we all do. And I think the, the key is to notice, to notice that, uh, not judge it, and simply come back again to, to this sense of being receptive and grateful. How did you come in contact with mindfulness? How did it become a practice for you? Gee, that's a good question. I can't remember. Um, hmm. Uh, must have gone back, must go back at least 20 years. Um, mm -hmm. You know, yoga has been important to me at various times in my life, too. It's not as important to me right now, but for many years I practiced yoga very regularly with a teacher who did quite a bit of mindfulness work at the end of um, of our classes as well. So it's come up in various forms and I've just always been inspired by the mindfulness, the great mindfulness teachers, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, Pema Chodron. Um, there are others as well. It's just a really, it's just a really good thing. Um, uh, Richard Rohr, a Christian, but, you know, speaks about contemplation. Any, really any contempl any contemplative practice is extremely valuable and perhaps more now uh, now than than ever oh i wouldn't say that <laughs> i think contemplative practice is good for human beings yeah let's leave it at that yeah i i'm curious as to what you would say to people that are and i know for myself at one point in my life i was amongst this group um that resists the idea of meditation or thinks that it's too hard or that they can't do it what what would you say to someone like that, or how would you encourage them to approach that kind of practice? Um, hmm. I, I'm. It's interesting that I'm hesitating. You know, I think if it's if it's something that you really strongly resist, I I don't know if I would necessarily encourage you to do it. I think instead, I would sort of I would say, well, what does what does lead you into a place of connectedness that lets you let go of your own particular uh, cravings and storylines? What does do that? Is it, is it a walk in nature, for for example, or is it is it yoga? Is it um, exercise? You know, is it is it physical activity? I think everyone, you know, there's such diversity in human experience. So, I, I think if it if it isn't something you want to do, I wouldn't really say you've got to do it. Um, cause again, that leads us down a, a difficult path. Uh, I, I do find it's, um, experimenting with all kinds of things can lead us to, to, um, appreciation, you know, if, if nothing else. 
And, and I guess also just to recognize that we're always growing and changing and what fits for you one year may not fit the following year, you know, or something that wasn't uh, useful two years ago might be uh, useful now. Yeah. Yeah. And that it strikes me that the other things you were suggesting, you can find mindfulness or meditation in other things that doesn't have to be sitting. Oh, yeah. In stillness. Yeah, I really recommend, uh, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist um, monk, uh, he, his classic book, Pieces Every Step, is, uh, talks about different, you know, even, even a little meditation that, that you do as the phone rings, you know, things like that. Ways of being mindful in your daily life, noticing, ah, a bell has rung. How am I responding? You know, even before you pick up the phone. So it's a even moment by moment awareness. Or he has a walking meditation that's like that as well. He also, talks about you know gazing upon a flower you know or a, something a house plant or anything like that just it, it's really anything that opens our eyes helps us wake up to life present life as it is and just lets us let go a little bit of that story that's going on whatever that is yeah yeah that's great And you can find Lynn Harrison's spiritual practice, Daily Mindfulness, in the Spiritual Practice Library at keepingfaithpod.com, where you can listen to her guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Lynn's released six records of her music, including her latest, Something More, which you can find on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And you can catch Lynn's sermons at First Unitarian Congregation of Toronto, streamed online at firstunitariantoronto.org. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith. Our theme music is by Ron Kelly, and this week's episode featured additional music by Lynn Harrison. Our design is by Barbara Kowalski. If this episode spoke to you, you can subscribe or leave us a review. But more importantly, pass it along to someone you care about. It's one way we can encourage each other to keep faith. Next week, for the last episode of our season, we're turning the tables as I slide into the guest seat. And who better to sit across from me in the host's chair than our episode 8 guest, my husband, Dave Fodiatis. That's right. I'll be asking Marin the questions you've heard her ask all season about her personal spiritual journey and how a podcast about faith, hope, and millennials came out of all of that. And we'll be giving you our whole unedited conversation. Except um, for, you know, a few ums and ahs. But until then, holding you in hope and faith, I'm Marin Smith. See you next week.